The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and every week I am devoted to you, all of my listeners, to give you the information that will give you a happier, more embodied life, to enhance your spirit, to feel like your life is joyful, and I think a lot of the times when we do lose that sense of well-being, we can find it in a really good book. And when we really feel like we're met, it's because we find community. And today is all about talking about how a great book can lead to an incredible community. Um, The book I'm talking about is such an incredible read. I loved every second of it. It's called This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, A Season of Unlikely Happiness. And I'm so honored to have the author, Laura Munson, with me today, who I will introduce momentarily. Um, I can remember exactly when I got this book in my hands, and it was my neighbor, Michelle, who loves to read like I do. And she was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You can't believe this book. And she gave it to me, borrowed her copy. I don't think I slept the whole night. I read it from cover to cover. At the time in my life that I was going through some huge transitions, it was as if this book was telling me exactly what I was feeling and thinking. And it really is a book about self-empowerment, which a lot of people didn't get when they read it. And I want to talk to Laura more about that. So let me tell you about Laura Munson. She is the author of this incredible book, which is a New York Times and international best-selling memoir. Again, the name is This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, A Season of Unlikely Happiness, which Book of the Month Club named one of the best books of the year. It has been published in nine countries and has been featured in Vanity Fair, Elle, Red Book, Time, Newsweek, Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, and many other newspapers, magazines, and online venues across the globe. Laura spent much of her time promoting this as well on TV. She's appeared on Good Morning America, The Early Show, many NPR stations. She has since created and become the founder of Haven Writing Retreats, which is ranked one of the top five writing retreats in the U.S. by Open Road Media. 
She speaks and teaches on the subject of empowerment through creativity at conventions, universities, and schools, artist retreat centers, and wellness centers. She lives in Montana with her family. Welcome, Laura Munson, to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. I'm just so excited to speak to you today. I I spoke about your book to so many of the people in my community, and I want to get into um, all the ways that you have created community for those that loved your book. But I want to start by just asking you where you first felt in your journey a connection to your spiritual self. Wow, that's a big question. I, you know, the answer truthfully from the bottom of my soul is that I can remember being a little girl and walking my dog around the block in suburban Chicago (laughs) and practicing what I would say to God um, if, in fact, there is such a thing as heaven. And I remember Mm -hmm. saying, who created you? (laughs) And I probably was in like, I don't know, fourth grade. And interestingly enough, I have journals that go back to the fourth grade, like honestly, Uh you know, like the like pink patent leather one with the, the lock that says private on it. Yeah. And those journals are filled with, you know, questions about boys, but also filled with questions about God. So mm. I, I, honestly, I feel that I've always been on a spiritual journey since I was little. I was raised going to church every Sunday, and I really understood more about that which is not known than, than that which it, which is known. And I've always been very interested in mysticism now from all different world religions. So I think when I read your book, the reason I asked you that question as an opener is I felt this very deep spiritual language that was expressed through your story. It it was a story about your marriage, but it was mostly a story about your discovering uh, self, your yourself in, in this time that was transitional within your marriage. And I think the reason that struck me so deeply was that we really can only reconnect with our personal power when we realize that we've lost it. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? And isn't that too bad? You know, I, I, I wish that that which didn't kill us didn't have to make us stronger, you know, but it is Often when we are feet to the fire and bashing our head against the wall that we learn our lessons. And I had done that for far too many years in the realm of rejection in my, um, in my field, which is writing. And that's very much par for the course that you are met with a lot of rejection. And I had been in a lot of suffering because of it. I had had those rejection letters mean you're not a good writer or you're not talented or you'll never get published instead of simply getting them and saying, okay, it says this does not meet our needs at this time. Well, okay. Whose needs does it meet? So suddenly I started to change my thinking and it changed everything for me. I started to get a brand new awareness of the thought patterns in my mind that were not serving me at all. And so then I was able to practice that in my field and then when I was met with rejection from my husband, I plugged that same sort of philosophy into a marital crisis. And in that time, which is depicted in the book, I found great surrender and great emotional freedom, which was a real surprise. And it's interesting because when you say emotional freedom, I think that really is a gateway to happiness, certainly for many women. And yet we continue as females often to attach ourselves identity-wise to this concept of other, whether it's through the role of mother or spouse or partner. 
And honestly, that is one of the ways that we can lose our freedom when, in fact, it can be a way to learn more about your personal power and freedom while in those different roles. But I don't think that's understood. Yes, I agree. And, you know, uh, to me, it's all about getting in touch with those thought patterns. It sounds really lofty at first when I go around talking about emotional freedom and non-suffering. I lose half the audience because that's just that's huge, that concept. But if I start to help people tune in to what goes on in our minds and how often we wouldn't treat our worst enemies the way that we treat ourselves in our heads, once we become aware of that, I think things can start to change. And the way that I know how to find that awareness is through writing. And that's one of the things that I've been so inspired by you because you write so often. You're, we're going to get into your social media and your website in a moment and all of the things you offer there, including the video I just watched yesterday, is a great way for anyone who can't get to one of your retreats in person to really utilize these exercises that help you, the writer, the person, the listener, to be unapologetic about the way you feel. And I'm going to say that again, be unapologetic about the way you feel. And I think that is where we get imprisoned, whatever roles we're in, as women typically, where we become so critical or the voice you say that you hear in your own head is louder than any other voice. And it's often not a really good friend. It's critical. It's judging. It's conditional. And I think a lot of what you do in these retreats is you unlock that freedom within the brain that gives the person the chance to really have support within the self-speak and a lot of guidance and a lot of encouragement. And certainly as a writer, making a living as a writer, you have to really hone in on that because you're right, there is so much rejection. And I think there's a lot of rejection in many fields. So let's talk a little bit about how you went from being or you are a writer still, obviously, but where where did this whole co- concept of community, creating a place for people to come and join together, t- tell us what happened to, to make that manifest in your world? Well, just to piggyback off of what you were saying right before you asked that question, I think I can segue into answering it, but <clears throat> in no way am I telling people not to feel their emotions or to put them under the rug. The question To ask yourself, the awareness to have is, like I said before, does this serve me? Does this pattern of thinking serve me? And if the answer is yes, great. You know, and so like an easy way of saying it is if I want to freak out, I want to powerfully choose to freak out rather than feeling like the freak out is choosing me. And I think that's how we're sort of socialized to feel that we really don't have control over our emotions. And I've learned that there is a gap between the things people say and do to us and our emotional reaction to them. So what I'm trying to help people do both um, when I speak to people, when I write about this, and also at my, my retreats is to stretch that gap so that you can actually step back and see what really will serve you in the way you react to it. So, so in terms of my own writing, I think, you know, again, since I've been little in that little pink patent leather journal, I've been trying to figure out what this beautiful and heartbreaking thing called life is. And to me, writing is the best way to parse it because in so doing, we can get it out of our systems and look at it and decide what we want to do with it. <clears throat> do we want to continue to let that story 
live in our minds and, and in our thought patterns, or is it time to change that? And, you know, honestly, I've, I've uh, written things down and, and had this new awareness that says to me something like, really, you are still in that story after years of therapy and all sorts of hmm. healing work. You still are slogging around that old story and not even aware of it. And so I've done things like burn it in the fireplace or send it out, you know, down the river. I live in Montana, so we've got lots of rivers with great <laughs> rapids that have carried away many of um, my old stories. So, so that's that's really it. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just getting over a chest cold. That's really what's at the core of what I do. And if people want to then turn that into a novel or a memoir or um, an essay or a blog series, then I can help them with that too. But I'm really trying to help them get into a new awareness about their thought patterns because ultimately I don't believe it's about the writing at all. It's about what's behind the words and what's in between them and then what's left in their wake. What's behind them, what's in between them, and what's left in their wake. So I'm teaching awareness ultimately. And to me, that's what writing does best. Why do you think that there is such an attachment to those stories that harm us in our minds? Why, why do we latch on to those so tightly? And we remember them so exactly, but we really don't do the same thing with the positive stories or the happy memories or the ways in which we felt encouraged and supported. Now, I hear often when I'm talking to people who are considering coming to Haven, if they're professional writers, um, especially the journalists say this a lot, uh, and you do not have to be a writer to come, but uh, I've worked with many published authors, best-selling authors, and journalists as well, and the journalists usually say, listen, I mean, I need real feedback. I want the good, the bad, and the ugly, and with emphasis on bad and ugly, and I often think just, wow, that is so... What a commentary on uh, on society that we're taught that the real feedback is the bad and the ugly. At Haven, and what I've learned to do with my own writing, is that we focus on what's powerful, not what's good or bad. So we step outside of good, bad, right, wrong, great at the end, and the mother of them all perfection. And we step into this free zone that we actually had when we were children. So I've also worked <clears throat> with a lot of educators and they tell me that the inner critic is born in about sixth grade, like 12 years of age, unless we've uh, in- endured some other kind of abuse. Naturally, the inner critic is born at about age 12. And by the time she's, I, I turned 50 th- uh, this year, by the time she's 50, she knows exactly what buttons to push. She knows just how to have, have a megaphone right to your rawest place in your heart. And And again, most of us wouldn't treat our worst enemies the way that we do in our own mind, inviting that inner critic in and giving her excellent thread count. So during the time of my book, that was a time when I was becoming aware of her. And so I had to sort of, you know, ask her to put up her dukes. You know, it was sort of like, how dare you talk to me like that? That felt important at the time. I even named her. She was my evil twin sister, Sheila. And I don't even know where I got that. (laughs) But um, I had to name her. I had to go that far to become aware of her and start to see how she was really corrosive in my life. And then <clears throat> several years after that, I realized, well, you know, even if Sheila is the result of institutions and people in my life, I still welcome her in. You know, I still give her that that real estate. And so I decided that unless I become, you know, Gandhi <laughs> in this <laughs> life, I probably will never be able to shake Sheila. So I decided to look at her 
as a scared little girl who just needs to take a nap. And, mm. and in a way, it's like loving her into submission because the minute that she starts ranting, I realize that rant is fear. And so if I hold her in my arms and love her and hug her and quiet her down, then she takes a nap or goes back to sleep. So at Haven, she takes a nap and we get to focus on what is powerful about what it is that we have to say and how to say it powerfully, whether or not we ever care to get published. So in a way, it's a freedom from the fear with great support that you provide. And and I'm curious how you, when did this idea of creating these retreats and this community come to you? Well, I did it alone for many, many years. Um, and I told myself it was because I was too stubborn. I did not go get an MFA I got into an MFA program and, and I decided that I didn't want to be in a community where my thoughts were so precious and everybody was maybe competitive or wanting to one day win a Pulitzer. I just thought, you know, I'm going to go cut my teeth on life. And I lived in Boston and I took every job I possibly could that wouldn't tempt me with 401k and health benefits. <laughs> but my parents' dismay after going to a really nice New England boarding school and a private college. I ended up driving a delivery truck and working in video stores back when we had video stores and um, working in a flower shop and just a bartender, kind of you name it, just trying to put my finger on the pulse of what this human condition is all about. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I've actually written since 1988, I've written, oh, I think by now it's 20 books, if you can believe that. And they're not wow. all good. <laughs> they're exercises in learning, but I have a, probably about six of them that I would love to see published, um, both novels and nonfiction. But I think at a certain point, um, moving out to Montana and living here for 25 years, you really are alone. And um, I've raised kids and uh, I'm no longer married. Um, however, you know, th- this is a big container for your muse, the big sky of Montana. And so when I, when I started to go out into the world again, when that book got published that you read, as you, as you noted in, in my bio, suddenly the, I'm, you know, being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America, I'm doing the early show, I'm doing all kinds of NPR and international television and radio <clears throat> and speaking in front of these huge groups of people, sometimes 2,000 people at a time at women's conferences. And the one thing that people came up and said to me over and over again, not, not like give me a recipe to save my marriage, because that book was never about that. That was just the entry point. It was more about the stuff you talked about, emotional freedom during a time when society would call you an emotional victim. Well, they said to me over and over, you used writing to get through a very difficult time of deep rejection. I'm going through something really hard too, whether it's cancer or their kid has an eating disorder or their uh, marriage is falling apart or their, you know, et cetera, you name it. And I want to write and their eyes would, you know, light up and then dim really quickly. And then the qualifiers would come in and, and I heard them over and over again. I'm not creative. I don't have the time, even if I was, and somebody already said it better than I ever could. And then the big one, I'm not creative at all. And, and that's just not true. We're all creative. Just speaking is an act of creation. Putting on clothes in the morning, that's an act of creation. Decorating your house, act of creation. So I thought, what would, well, I was also in post-divorce reinvention. Let's throw that out there. And I needed a, a, a career that provided me um, stable income. 
And I thought, how can I mine who I'm already being? And this is something that I think is so important for your audience and everyone. Rather than reinventing the wheel, if you're in a time of reinvention, why not look at who you already are being, how you are already showing up in the world, and try to mine that. So I thought, this is one thing I know how to do. I'm horrible at paying my bills on time. I don't really understand, you know... (laughs) (laughs) all sorts of things about how our society works but I know how to sit down no matter what's going on in my life and write and use it as that therapeutic tool that I know it to be transformative tool that I know it to be and so one day on Facebook I put it I put out hey anybody want to come on a writing retreat with me in Montana and in two hours 24 people signed up and I (laughs) thought okay this is what I think I'm supposed to be doing outside of writing I'm supposed to be in community and not just holing up in Montana while my kids are at school and, and writing and writing and writing. So I started Haven Writing Retreats. I had no idea where I was going to lead them or what my price point was going to be or more importantly, what the program was going to be. And now five years later, <clears throat> we've served over 400 people from all over the world. But that is what has changed everything for me to trust that the act of creating, whether you're writing or not, whatever kind of co-creating you can do in a group of people is absolutely freeing beyond measure measure it's uh you do not have to do it alone and as much as the internet has been a powerful tool for me living out here in the remote part of the state it's not the kind of community that can happen when you're sitting in a circle looking into people's eyes and that's what happens at haven and so i love it i do i I bring in 120 people a year to sit in these small circles of 10 and to be in community. And most of them are total introverts too, not used to groups. And I, I think that I'm sort of, a, I'm a very extroverted introvert. So mm-hmm. it took a while for me to trust the group experience, but I've, I've learned that it, it is absolutely crucial to have community and connection. Yeah, you know? never, never has it been more important. And I just want to let everyone know that The name is Haven. We're going to give you the info at the end. But one thing I noted on your website that was interesting is the dynamic of a one-day workshop versus a five-day workshop. And I know you can teach any sort of workshop that someone would be curious about. But what would you say is the main difference between one day in that circle looking in each other's eyes versus five days? That's a great question. So this is the kind of thing where... (laughs) If you build it, they will come, and so and it or like have retreat or have workshop will travel. So I've worked with all sorts of different sorts of groups that are outside of Montana. So um, like I've I've been doing corporate stuff recently, um, where people are in theater seating, you know, so they're not in a circle, they're not looking at each other, and they're with colleagues, so they know each other well, you know, and it's very hard to be. Um, that transparent and vulnerable uh, around people who you might not want to. Um, have no the fabric of who you really are, <laughs> and especially if you're not happy with your job. Or I've, I've done stuff um, in communities where everybody's kids go to school together. Um, and again, in theater seating, not in the circle. Um, and, and then I also do one-day workshops with small groups at the homes of uh, Haven Writing Retreat alums around the country too. So the difference is that, you know, if you're doing something from nine to five, you know, if you're coming in and you've had a busy morning and, you know, you commuted and you're, you had to deal with whatever you had to deal with before 9 a.m. 
And then knowing that you're leaving at the end of the day, back into traffic, back into your world, going back home, stack of bills, got to make dinner, 25,000 emails to answer, a lot of it junk mail. It's just a different mindset. Whereas if you can actually take five days out of your life and go someplace, especially here, you know, into the woods of Montana, where it's so quiet. On the last retreat we did, it was January, I mean, February, and we do it on this um, family compound, and it's on this beautiful lake, and it's just us and, um, and the people who take care of us. And just it, during class, looking out the window, there was a coyote running across the lake at one mm. point. There was a beaver going down through um, his, his um, hole in the ice near his dam to fish and was pulling up huge fish and eating them on the ice. We had bald mm. eagles everywhere. It was just like you can't. You can't reproduce that in a hotel somewhere in Mexico, which I, I've done them. And I do find that the sacred, whenever you create this kind of uh, experience, the sacred follows you. Uh, but it's there's something about really taking time out of your life for five days and doing this work in community with somebody you trust in a beautiful place that can make all the difference. That's not to say that the one day's aren't powerful. Or even if I do a half day or a luncheon, people always really love this because we one other thing to answer your question, Laura, I can't get as deep with the writing prompts that I do mm-hmm. if it's just a half day or a one day. So it's kind of like Haven Light. But for many people who do those one day workshops, they're not, they don't consider themselves writers at all. And so this is a huge opportunity for them to simply express themselves, maybe for the first time. And the exercises that we do keep them very safe but allow them to figure out how to powerfully enter in to the big themes of their lives that can sometimes feel, get you very stuck once you start to try to break them down. So mm. I think that's the difference. Well, and as you often say, you don't have to be a writer to gain these entire benefits from taking one of these retreats with you. What I'm curious about after all these many years of doing it what would you say is a common thread that you note in these workshops? In other words, like take the listeners through people arrive and they're generally feeling fill in the blank. And when people leave, they are generally feeling fill in the blank. Well, when they come, they're excited and scared, as I would be too if I was. I mean, these people. Out of 10, 11 attendees per retreat, there's usually maybe one Montanan every other retreat. So these people come from all over the place. We've had people from Istanbul and India and Saudi Arabia and Dubai and Paris and New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera, and from every coast. So they come on a Wednesday and maybe half the room is from the East Coast. So they woke up at you know, whatever, four in the morning. <laughs> and, um, you know, we live in a remote part of the world, but the, the airport is really close. So it's actually really easy to get here. Um, but so there's just, I think that the, the common thread, because like you said, not everybody who comes is a writer. The common thread is that they're all seekers. They're all seekers. And they understand that writing in this way, supported in a small community in a beautiful place, will help them to shed some of those thought patterns so that they can move forward in their lives and maybe going on a yoga retreat doesn't suit them because they don't do yoga although we do offer yoga in the afternoon which is optional or going on an equestrian trek across the andes might be too scary for them so everyone knows how to write or put pen to paper for the most part because we learned it in school 
So, so it's often less daunting. In many cases, it's more daunting because maybe there was a negative experience with a teacher or, um, you know, I've helped a lot of people chisel their way out of negative experiences that happened uh, at other workshops or in academia. And I, I believe in academia, but what I've essentially put together is a non-academic MFA program because we have all these advanced programs now. But for the first program, which is completely standalone, it's a retreat and a workshop, and people know that. They know it's designed to meet them where they need to be met, and we've spent hours on the phone with each person beforehand to make sure it's a really good match for everybody and to make sure they understand what they've signed up for. So when they get there on Wednesday, they know what they've signed up for, and we already have a relationship, but then it's just the kind of shock of taking that, that huge stand for yourself to come, mm. come out to Montana, do this work, you know, you know, if you said you were going to like a cooking retreat in Tuscany, your friends would say, oh, good for you, or a yoga retreat in Bali. Oh, awesome. I have a friend who did that. But a writing retreat in Montana, that's sort of <laughs> new for people. So I think when they arrive, it is it is with um, high hopes that they will have the experience that, that we talked about on the phone. And when they leave, almost everybody comes up to me and says, okay, that just surpassed my wildest expectations that that wasn't just a writing retreat that just changed my life and I you know it's easy for me to say that but uh, if you look at some of the videos on the Haven page where people are talking about their experience you you really hear that from people And, and it's not me it's it's I think the conversation between the person who wants to come and do this kind of work and the experience that that they go through for those five days why why do you think it is that people generally don't have the courage or the wherewithal to even know what it is they need to say uh, on the inside versus verbally on the outside. But like where, I know you mentioned that 12 years old, sixth grade, we, we, we end up with those bad messages that make an imprint in the brain that creates the self-speak of negativity. But as we then get older and we become middle-aged, what is it that you think shuts down the voice within that we all have? Well, it can be any number of things. But what I see after working with 400 people is that it's actually a lack of awareness about those thought patterns. And we, we begin to memorize our thought patterns like a song that we know well and that we even are fond of. But when we start to really tune in, we can see that, oh, that thought pattern is not serving me at all. So what we do at Haven is that we, um, <clears throat> and then, I mean, I do this kind of in all the work that I do and in my own life with my, myself and my own writing and my own personal growth. But I, I choose themes, that the, the really charged themes in my life, T-H-E-N-E-S, themes in my life right now, like the big stuff. And you know what those themes are. They're the things that keep you up at night, the, the things that, um, that are your inconvenient truths, the things that you don't want to have to admit, but you know is the burning truth inside of you. And we don't share what those are publicly, but I ask people to tune into those the first day privately, write them down. And then all of the exercises that we do Um, and all of the exercises are meant to build upon one another, are different ways to get into those themes, different entry points, using all sorts of different genres of writing. And it helps us to unmemorize that song, that story, and create a new one. And I think think that's just, it's as simple as that. And, you know, about to answer your question about how we get stuck, um, 
with new awareness, we can get unstuck. But you also have to be really committed to um, be out there on that scaffolding, which can be really scary, um, that's outside of what it is that you've memorized. And, and so that's why the people who come to Haven are ready to do that kind of work. In no way is it self-help or group therapy. But for many people, even if they come there to work on a book project, or if they just come there to write in their journal more often or anything in between, they understand that at the core of this, there's, there's, there's work that writing can do for them that, is, that far transcends any project that they've got. And that's another thing that they all have in common. They might not totally know how to verbalize it, but they sense that that's the truth. So they're there for change. They're there to, for many people, they're there to have a complete game changer. They're looking at, um, you know, I'm going to quit my job, start a new career. I'm thinking of, it's like, I'm in a should I stay, should I go situation with work or even a relationship. And they're very self-responsible people who want to grow. And they value the fact that the written word can help them do so. As well as to embrace the mystery of life and love, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting when you mention that scaffolding, because the opposite of not going out on that scaffolding is to live a dead life where, you know, many will say they get to their deathbed and they have an awakening, but why wait until then? I mean, if you can handle the fact that it's going to be really scary and really unknown and, you might even not know how one will get you off the scaffolding and help you get down, or if there is even an exit off. It's still an awakening that is being alive versus dead within this time frame that is your life. Yes, and you know what, Laura? I found, and this is good news, is that we're we're scared of that scaffolding. But what I've noticed, and I, I, it's not just writing that does this, it's music, it's any kind, it's singing, it's any kind of self-expression. Um, my way is just through writing, but there are many other ways to the same goal. Is that when you feel like your self-expression, even in conversation, or if you have to give a speech, or even writing in your journal, if you feel like it's easy I think we're taught that, that there must be something wrong, <laughs> that it's got to be hard. And what I've learned is that when it's easy, that's when you're actually in your flow. So when I, I, I'll repeat that because that one's, it's like fresh new news to a lot of people. When you're in your natural flow, I believe when you're really in your true purpose and you're expressing yourself in a, in a pure, honest way, pure is the word, in a way, it should feel absolutely natural and easy and in fact when I went out when the book came out in hardback um, you know thank goodness I do have that extroverted side to me and I was raised to know how to look people in the eye and shake hands and not chew gum kind of thing <laughs> I was a theater major too so I was really comfortable speaking in front of large groups of people and you know that's if I had only been a writer my whole life holed up in Montana I think I would have been in a lot of trouble when I went out there and um, uh, promoting that book, but I knew that I needed to take something from Montana and from my writing practice with me that would help ground me. And so I came up with a one-line statement of purpose, and or, or you can call it a mantra if you want, or an affirmation. And it's something that I also um, live by in my life. I have a, a writer statement that I work with every day. And at Haven, I help people develop their own, whether or not they consider themselves writers it's um, a writing statement and so my statement for going out there on the road was 
I give myself permission to be exactly who I am and have it be easy. I give myself permission to be exactly who I am and have it be easy. And it works. I love that. I do too. I, it doesn't just, whenever I say it, my shoulders drop like three inches. And like, <laughs> <sighs> it's such a yeah. spacious way of being. So I think if, if people are, I'm always trying to break things down into something that's very simple. And, and, and so being in your natural flow, I think is easy. And maybe the way to allow yourself to get there can be difficult. Uh, but once you're there, you'll know it when it's just, like you, like I hardly remember writing that book that you read. I honestly don't really remember writing it, and I had never written memoir before. I'd written nonfiction in essay form, but never, um, never long form nonfiction. And that's the darn thing that ends up on the New York Times bestselling bestseller list after years and years of writing novels. So um, I think that's an indication, a, a living example of of what I'm trying to um, convey. So tell me a little bit more about that. Was there this just one day, are you sitting there writing a novel and, and you break over to the side and start this memoir because it's just flowing through you like water in one of the rivers of Montana? How did, how did that organic sense of knowing, how did it actually transpire in you? Well... I mean, I w- wish I had a really elegant answer for that. I've, I've actually got a copy of my book right next to me, and it begins with 5 a.m. summer, Montana. At this moment in my life, I am strangely serene. In fact, I may have never felt more calm or more freed or more certain that these things owe themselves to a simple choice to accept life as it is, even and especially when it really, and then there's a swear word, effing <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Even and especially if my husband left last night to go to the dump after announcing that he isn't sure he loves me anymore and nine hours later still hasn't come back. That's Mm. the first paragraph. Uh. I wrote that at 5 a.m. in summer in Montana. And then then I won't keep reading except for I'll, I'll give you three more lines. You might think all this would find me in a place of intense panic. Pain. Oh, sorry. Intense pain. Panic even. State of emergency. But I'm choosing something else. I'm choosing not to suffer. And so that I remember writing that. My kids were asleep upstairs. I had no idea what I was going to tell them. They were um, in middle school at the time. And there began this, you know, I say that writing is my practice, my prayer, my meditation, my way of life, and sometimes my way to life. And so when you've been writing for as long as I have since I've been little every day, and I don't tell other people that they have to write every day. You write when you feel the inspiration based on exactly who you are and what your life's like and when you feel creative and that might be once a week or once a month or every Wednesday for two hours or every morning for 15 minutes, whatever it is for you. But for me, because it's all those things for me, especially my way to life, I knew that I needed to use it as the transformative tool that it is. And so they, I just showed up every day. It wasn't a journal. Like I, if nobody would want to re- read read my journals from that time in my life, or hear what my horse heard, or you know what the white-tailed deer in the meadow heard <laughs> during that six-month period. But that book was a way of showing up for myself and w- trying to walk this walk of emotional freedom, whatever that is, and sometimes being really bad at it um, in those pages in hopes of helping others. So I, I will say that that I wrote, I wrote that book and then um, I wrote the short version of it. 
and sent that to the New York Times Modern Love column. And that's a longer story, but it was published. And that little essay, which I wrote in one hour, ended up going co- totally viral. Like, it, like it's had over like 5 million readers and it's been reproduced all over the world. And I still, that was in 2009, I still get uh, letters from people from that essay, which was the short version of this book. And then my agent went out with the book on Monday after it was published in, in the Modern Love column. And, um, and then suddenly I had a big book deal with the same editor who was the editor of The Help, Catherine Stockett's book. And actually Catherine came to Haven. She's a Haven alum. She came to work on her next book. So every so often we get a big best-selling author who's just right there in a circle with everybody else taking the thought and turning it into the form that can be um, a story. But, but you know, I... I I think that ultimately that little essay was a result of me getting very clear about why I write in the first place. And so right before I wrote that essay, I came up with my own author statement. I'd never done that before, um, but I just thought, you know, now's the time to get something published. And I know this book is going to help a lot of people, um, but my agent wanted something smaller to go out first. So I wrote, I write to shine a light on a dim or otherwise pitch black corner to provide relief for myself and others. I write to shine a light on a dim or otherwise pitch black corner to provide relief for myself and others. And I think that's what people felt when they read that book. They felt relief because what I was talking about uh, was sort of, I mean, it's like I said, it's lofty stuff, this idea of emotional freedom and non-suffering. But it, this book shows a woman doing, really applying this sort of philosophy in a very practical way, right at her kitchen sink, driving her kids to school, sitting on the sidelines of the soccer team, soccer game, not knowing what's going on with her marriage and just tuning into how she thinks and trying to change, <laughs> sorry, the phone's ringing, um, and trying to change her thought patterning, and again, being really bad at it at some, sometimes. So I have, I have to believe that the, the reason why that book did so well and that essay was because people got to see that they're not alone, you know? And that's yes. what Rice does, that they're not alone. It's not a how-to book. It's not self-help. It's not 10 easy steps to enlightenment. It's just come with me, live in my little world. We'll see if we can get somewhere together. Watch as I shine the light on that corner that we all have in our lives. You know, it's it's reminding me of the fact that Alain de Bottom's New York Times, I know you've seen this probably, that the most read article in 2016 was why you will marry the wrong person. So I find it fascinating that we're all really compelled by relational honesty and the difficulty and the struggle that is so common, but it is only when someone as brave as you or Alan writes about it from that very honest perspective that it goes completely viral. So what, what do you think is so compelling to this culture of ours with respect to relationships, intimate relationships, marriage, partnership? Well... So ask the question a little bit more specifically. What do I think is compelling for relationships about vulnerability? You mean, or or why your modern love and and his article both about relationships and marriage and the truth and the difficulty and the vulnerability goes completely viral. Like that that is a hot 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 topic, mm-hmm. and yet we're all trying to figure out how to do it and it's so hard and maybe that's what we've never been 
properly taught. Yeah, the illusion. I think that that's another thing that writing does. It, it, if we can get to our truth in the most vulnerable way, putting our heart in our hand, but also being responsible, not playing victim. Like in no place in that book am I exposing my then husband in any kind of malicious way. I focused on my story, my experience of that time in my life. I didn't ever mention anybody's name including obviously my children's names, um, not even my horse's name. The only creature with a beating heart who was named in that book was my daughter's pet rat, Houdini. (laughs) And that was for good reason. And, you know, a lot of people who come to Haven want to write about their life experience, but they don't want to expose others. And I always say, if you write from your heart about your experience and you are self-responsible for it, you can write about anything. And it will create that bridge that you're talking about from my little corner to yours, from my heart to yours. I heard from so many deployed soldiers. I heard from my favorite, I've quoted this a lot, but I just, I love it. And my favorite bit of fan mail ever was from a blind woman from Tel Aviv. And she emailed me and she said, I heard about your book and I downloaded it this weekend. And I've never been married, nor do I have children but your book helped me get through the, the greatest loss of my life, and that was the death of my seeing eye dog to cancer. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my That's God. That's what can happen. That's the power of the written word. And it's not just – So some people think that they have to use a lot of fancy oh. language, and they have to be, in quotes, a good writer, and they have to have a strong command of the English language and turn a phrase and be wise. And that's usually the stuff that gets in the way. That yeah. book is written in such a bare-bones way – and it's actually a really different style um, than my writing style in my novels. And I almost thought, well, this isn't any good. But, but you know what? What people said over and over again is just thank you for being willing to be so transparent. And I think vulnerability is finally fashionable. You know? <laughs> That's and well I'm, said. <laughs> I'm glad about that. So really, if you think about bridge building and community and connection, that's what needs to go behind any kind of self-expression. Like if, you're, if you've been charged with giving a speech for your you know, corporation or in some sort of group that you represent, think about getting vulnerable before thinking about your message. And, and one thing we really focus on a lot at Haven, and I'm also writing a book about writing right now, is the power of the scene, S-C-E-N-E, the scene, not the theme, because the theme is too fraught, and that's often what gets us stuck in our thinking and also our writing. But the scene actually is what holds up the theme. And that, that's really good news, too, because we live a life, we live our lives in scenes. You're sitting wherever you're sitting. I'm sitting here in my dining room looking out at the snow melting in Montana, listening to the sump pump, thank God, working in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we live our life not by themes, but by scenes. And so, again, what I'm really trying to help people do is find their flow, find their voice, find what it is that they have to say in the unique way that only they can say it. And then they can do with that whatever they want. Well, and I love what you say about your incredible memoir in that you're right. I think the thing that was so moving to me is you weren't pointing fingers. You, you, There was no sense of vitriol. It was simply a heartfelt, honest depiction of what happens when someone that you are deeply connected to, married to, have family with is unavailable 
and and how to sort of make sense of that while becoming empowered within your own availability to self. And I love that it was not at all about pointing the finger or saying the names. And, and I think that's why it felt for me like this manual to really trust because it was vulnerable, but it wasn't blaming and there was no victim at all. She was the woman, you are that character in that memoir that was the heroine to keep all of us who were struggling as we read it to believe that we can do this too. We just have to find our voice. I mean, that was really what I got from it. Great. I love hearing that. That's fantastic. And it's, I, I, would, I would hazard to say, or no, I'll, I'll say, with full confidence, I will say that probably why it made that bridge from my life here to your world had everything to do with the scene. Because if I wanted to write a self-help book about that time in my life, it would have read very differently. And I actually, I don't really read self-help that much, and I don't know how to write it. Because I don't know how to bullet point anything. <laughs> I'm very bad at bullet pointing. And so, um, you know, I would encourage any of your listeners out there to, you know, if they really want to be more intentional about changing their thought patterns, I would say go to the grocery store, get one of those cheap composition books that we used in school, like five bucks, and a good pen, um, my favorite pen, I have to say, is the Vision Elite Uniball. <laughs> my favorite pen. And I got sort of a problem with that pen. And so, and, and, and go someplace very safe, very comfortable, cup of tea, quiet, nobody who might be an eyeball rolling teenager around you or somebody who doesn't support you in your self-expression. Um, you know, I like to do this just lying in my bed with lots of pillows. And I, I, write, I take that composition book and I put the most charged theme in my life at that time on the front of it. So let's say you have kids and they, they're all, you know, two of them are in college and one's about to go. Maybe the theme is, is empty nest. But I like to think of it more as the state of being that results from that, that thing. So I would, I, I would call that maybe more like, now what? <laughs> or reinvention or next stage or, you know, the rest of my life. And then open the book up and write down the top maybe six to eight scenes, S-C-E-N-E, that grow that grows or that grow organically from that theme. So, like, at a point in time, like the day that that my daughter decided to go to college out of state, or the the first time I walked by her room without crying, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm afraid of the rest of my life. I, who am I if I'm not a mother? Sort of thing like that. But but no no not that last one. It would be the the moment when I realized that I was afraid of the rest of my life. So points in time that have actually happened, mm-hmm. and then when you and then when you want to journal, rather than just journaling the way we do when we journal and kind of swirling around the vortex of these old stories, instead why not go to this themed composition book and grab one of those scenes and then write the scene. And then see what happens. Because honestly, if you write those six to eight scenes, what you have is a brand new way of patterning your life. And you might just have some personal essays in there if you want to write or even an entire memoir if you wanted to find the connective tissue and the structure of it. That That kind of intentional journal writing is really helpful. And I'm going to say, instead of the composition book, look for the pink patent leather. (laughs) (laughs) Try to find that pink patent leather diary that's got the little lock on the front. Those were so fantastic. Yeah, but don't get, don't go spend a whole lot of money on a really beautiful leather bound journal because (laughs) 
you probably, unless you're more advanced than I am, will, won't want to fill up the pretty pages with just, you know, scrawl. Because this is meant to be like, you know, throw it in the compost heap afterwards. It's supposed to not be precious. So, um, yeah, but I like the idea of the patent leather. <laughs> and what what is the scene? Give us a little bit, um, just quickly, darn it, because we have to close down soon now. But what would be the things that define a scene, not yeah. a theme? So a scene would include? It would include a, a place, uh, so setting, so let's say it's your grandmother's farmhouse in central Illinois and a Sunday supper. Like let, let us know exactly where you are in time and then the actual point in time. Um, let's say you're uh, 17 years old and it's summertime in July after a rainstorm. So the more specific that you can get in setting and place and place is a wonderful entry point into our themes, by the way. We do a lot of that at Haven. Um, and then uh, people, who's in the scene. So if it's you alone, um, then it's just you, but maybe there's a dog at your feet, um, or maybe there's a bird out the window on the bird feeder. Um, any other characters that were in that moment of, of your life, bring them in, let them talk, so dialogue. Uh, let us into your head, so we get your, I call it head noise. I think the actual phrase is internal monologue, but I like head noise because my head's pretty noisy. And then um, all five senses, as many of the senses that you can include. So if there's a pot of um, soup boiling on the stove, let us smell it. Um, maybe you take a taste of it. Maybe it reminds you of something else in your life. Um, all five senses, that's a good place to start. You can also throw in like a powerful question, something like, why is it that I'm always so afraid of being left? You know, you, you, because when you start with a powerful question, it begs an answer. Um, that's kind of a tricky little advice, uh, device to keep the flow going when you're writing. But just to recap, place, characters, dialogue, let us into your mind, all five senses, maybe a powerful question, uh, and write the scene. And the scene will resolve itself and you don't have to have any wisdom because of it. Just let the scene do the work and see if it liberates some of those thought patterns that aren't serving you. Oh, that's so great. And okay, so everyone wants to find you, I'm sure, after this conversation. There's lauramunson.com, which is L-A-U-R-A-M-U-N-S-O-N.com yeah. and Facebook. But Tell us all just if there's anything else that is a quick way to find you beyond your website and Facebook. Well, on my website, there's also the, you can, one of the tabs is Haven Writing Retreat. So if you're interested in the retreat, we do have some spaces in June, which is really uncommon. We have just a couple more spaces. So I'd love for any of your um, listeners to send me an email over uh, at laura at lauramunsonauthor.com. Or you can find on my website the Contact Us button that will go to that account. And my Haven team and I get all those, and then we set up a time to speak with you on the phone. And it usually takes about an hour, hour and a half, so allow that amount of time. Um, and then I also have a blog, and you can click to the blog from, um, from my website as well. And, of course, all the basics, Twitter and Facebook, and I have an author page on Facebook, but I'm always writing little things about the stuff we're talking about because I want to help people use writing and self-expression in their lives so that they can truly say what they want to say in the unique way that only they can say it. And I want to empower them and be in community with them, whether it's on the page or in person. Laura so Munson, yay. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you so much. You are the epitome of my tagline, which is that you complete you. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, and thank you for your wonderful work. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 